In this episode of Paid by the Word, Mike interviews Katina Manko, author of Ding Dong, Avon Calling, a fascinating book about the iconic Avon brand and the evolutions of its innovative sales model. Here's a snippet of their conversation. And so I just was able to land these archives. I kept calling Avon and asking for their archives. Um, I kept being pushed over to public relations where I got these high school kind of packets about the company and I kept saying no. Um, and finally, when the company was actually moving from 9 West 57th Street, it's a tall, slopey building, if you're familiar with New York City, yeah. right behind the Plaza Hotel, overlooking Central Park. They built that in the 1970s um, when Avon International was so strong. Um, and they were leaving it because they were starting to kind of downsize. It was an era of corporate downsizing. They were moving back to Rockefeller Plaza. And so they had these corporate fling days on different floors. It'd be these enormous bins where people were just encouraged to clean out their files, get rid of their paper. And I'd be going up and down these hallways and seeing these, <laughs> these corporations just jettisoning this material. Um, and I had gotten to the boxes in the back of the actual archives. And uh, so we got them moved. We were able to move uh, the archives down to the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. Um, which is a, one of the premier business manuscript collections uh, in the country. And so I was able to uh, move my materials and, and to write this really uh, fun book. Well, hello there, and welcome to Paid by the Word, a podcast featuring conversations with professional writers and editors. If you are curious about what goes on in the minds of people who write and edit for a living, this podcast is for you. Door-to-door selling. If you've ever done it, you know it's grueling work. Throughout most of its history, door-to-door selling was considered a man's job. That was before Avon invented the Avon Lady, a concept that revolutionized selling and opened the door for generations of women who wanted to become independent entrepreneurs. Katina Manko, an independent scholar, has written a thoroughly researched book about the history of Avon's distributed Salesforce model and its lasting impact on our culture. I couldn't help but draw comparisons between the Avon ladies and their modern day counterparts in the gig economy. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Katina and I hope you have a chance to read her book, Ding Dong, Avon Calling. Wow, just saying that brings back memories of my childhood. Hi, Katina, and thank you for taking the time to chat with me. I'm thank genuinely you for having me. looking forward to our conversation. I mean, Avon occupies a special place in the cultural history of the United States. It's fair to say that Avon was one of the first large companies that actively promoted women as entrepreneurs, not merely as consumers. And as you say in the book's introduction, your book is not about beauty products. You are chronicling the story of a legendary organization that successfully empowered hundreds of thousands of women to own and operate their own businesses. So Katina, tell us a bit about the history of Avon and tell us how it evolved from its origins as the California perfume company. Avon is a really unique company in American history. Uh, it starts much earlier than most people think of. Many people think of the, as the book title is, of Ding Dong, Avon Calling, that, that television commercial that was one of the longest running uh, commercials and advertising history. Uh, but the, that really comes around in the 1940s, 1950s. And Avon itself, though, begins, as you noted, as the California Perfume Company. 
Uh, and it starts in 1886. Uh, the founder of it, David McConnell, had been a traveling salesman himself and had been part owner of many different kinds of uh, peddler companies of, that sold books and silverware and jewelry and all those types of products. Uh, but he started in the 1880s um, selling perfume. And so uh, he reached out to women uh, who he thought were better sources for sales uh, to sell his perfume product. So talk to us about the scale and the scope of Avon Salesforce as it expanded from his domestic roots and became an international presence operating in 70 countries. Uh, well, that's a, it's actually a very long story to get from, from point A to point B there. Um, by the 1910s, 1920s, uh, Avon's, it's still the California Perfume Company, uh, is working with about 10 to 20,000 representatives nationwide. That makes it a fairly large company for direct sales. Um, and it's employing almost wholly women. They do not contract with men. And there's no other company that I found um, that contracted solely with women for door-to-door sales. And what made them different was that companies that contracted with men for sales, men traveled a lot. They were often in a town and out of it the next day. Uh, They traveled on trains through large cities. They stayed in hotels. There's a whole organization called the Gideons, right? You might remember from the Gideon Bibles that you find in hotels. Those come from a a traveling organization um, that were worried about men's Uh, moral health as they traveled away from home and through these cities and through these hotels. And so they worked to, they're a Christian organization that put Bibles in these hotel rooms. So Avon wants nothing to do with this, right? They don't want anyone to think that their representatives are these types of loose cannons. And so they um, have traveling agents who recruit and uh, take women in their neighborhoods and teach them to sell Avon products in amongst their families and in, in very small towns. So what makes another thing that makes Avon really unique in the first half of the 20th century is that they're rural. The vast majority of their representatives are working in towns of fewer than 1,000 people. So it's hard for us to wrap our heads around that. But they are tiny towns. They avoid city markets and, um, until after World War II. Uh, and so their reputation and the product line that they develop, that the company develops, uh, is really uh, with a mind toward these rural families and rural family needs. From a 21st century perspective, looking back at the Avon experience, I see this rare ability to innovate and, and create a distributed workforce. Right. You know, is exactly one of the things that we're coping with right now at this moment. Yeah, so, we, can get, we can get to that later. I think there's some really interesting crossover um, to, to today's gig economy is kind of what Avon and many direct sales companies are about yeah. uh, in, the, in the 20th century. So the next stage of Avon's development is that, um, please imagine you have a private company uh, that in its first 70 years had only three CEOs, three presidents. There was the founder, David McConnell. Then there was his son, who was a Princeton graduate. Um, and he's at the company for less than 10 years. He dies of a heart attack at age 45, I think, in, in just before the end of World War II. And then uh, there's this man, John Ewald, who started in Kansas City as a mailroom clerk. Uh, and he will, he will head the company until 1962. So it's the son, David McConnell Jr., who starts to move Avon into city markets. 
And that gets a little dicey um, for Avon. Uh, think of in that era, the Fuller Brush Man, um, if you can, if people know what the Fuller Brush Man is. Uh, he was the uh, agent who had a, a suitcase full of different types of brushes with different types of bristles in every shape and form for whatever it is you needed cleaning behind your radiator, between the radiator groups. They would leave uh, pamphlets at the door uh, and say, we will be back tomorrow. And they would do these grand demonstrations and they could get in, those men could get into an apartment building um, and then work their way, go to the top floor and work their way down. Um, only had to be invited once into an apartment building. So Avon and Avon ladies are much slower to get into city markets. And then, as I said, David McConnell Jr. dies. Um, but then that city market plan takes off, not so much in cities, but in suburbs. Oh, so here, I need you to think of Tupperware, right? Uh -huh. That starts in the 1940s. And Brownie Wise, who was a uh, distributor for Stanley Home Products, uh, really masterminds the home party for new suburbs and people who have moved and um, they don't know their neighbors. And so you have a Tupperware home party where you invite 10 or 15 or 20 of your neighbors and there's this sales demonstration with games and prizes. And so that is the market that Avon is entering, not in home parties, but only as door-to-door -door sales. They never got involved with home parties. It's not their thing. Looking back at this, what's remarkable is the company's ability to to master so many of the essential aspects of operating a large scale business. They were, as you point out in the book, in your wonderful book, I should say, that everybody should read. This is a an unabashed plug for your book. Now, you describe how Avon was a manufacturer, yes, producing all of its cosmetics, toiletries, and household products in its own factories. Yes. And a distributor, they published sales catalogs, they developed marketing strategies, they created national advertising campaigns. It, it's amazing. How did Avon do all this stuff and how did they do it so well? Most companies that are selling cosmetics, they want to get into the department stores, uh, the big brand names, the Elizabeth Ardens of the time, right? They, you want the glass counter with the sales rep who's perfectly made up herself and and that mass distribution, if not in department stores, then in drug stores, as as lipsticks, you know, enter, uh, you know, the the, the local drugstore, the the CVS or or wherever they're selling. Um, but Avon just keeps avoiding that, and I think they had an opportunity in the 1940s after World War II, where they really had almost thought of doing it because they liked. The, they said the Avon men liked the volume of sales. They liked the, how much easier it was to mass distribute. So Avon in World War II had taken on some pretty big federal contracts uh, for, the, um, for the military. They were making uh, little DAP packs. They were making um, you know, toiletries packs with, with toothbrushes and toothpaste and shampoo and soap and powder. They developed a special powder, I think, for, for airmen to put in their masks uh, around their masks. Um, and so they had these big contracts and they consciously cut down the size of the sales force. So a lot of Avon women were likely to become kind of rosies. They probably took uh, well-paying uh, wartime work. Uh, and then after that, Avon's sales force kind of like hits this lull. Um, and the Avon men start to really think, let's maybe jettison the, the direct sales force. They had the highest earners, um, a small number of women who were truly dedicated, and they didn't really want to go back to the casual worker. 
that they were kind of forced to, I think either by uh, company reputation or voices inside the corporation that said, look, these Avon ladies are ours and we really owe it to them. And we have to put our energy back into training them, motivating them. Uh, but what that, the payoff is, um, the distribution costs are extremely high. They reprint their books every three weeks. They have to distribute the sales books to all the Avon ladies. The Avon ladies buy them. I mean, they're not done for free. So an Avon lady that's part of her business expense is to buy her books, her samples. Um, And so Avon only had to set up city sales offices to help train women um, and supervise them, you know, kind of the Monday morning motivational meeting. And then as women took orders and mailed them in, they just had very, uh, they put their efficiency work into their distribution plants. So I went to school at University of Delaware and right down the way was this Avon distribution plant, which at the time was all automated and it was like the, it was, you know, the most technologically advanced distribution plant of Avon in the United States. Um, where the everything was set up and they could use these computers to push the orders through and the products automatically fell into the boxes. Um, and so they did, that's where they tried to cut their, or I should say, improve their efficiency, cut their costs for, for distribution. Um, they still were much higher than anything that could have gone in through a department store, uh, but they really felt dedicated to selling this notion of women as business owners. Uh, and you mentioned the word, the, the term gig workers uh, earlier. Yeah. Uh, I mean, how, how arduous was this or, or how, uh, I mean, how many hours a week did the average uh, Avon lady wind up working? <laughs> very few. <laughs> very, very uh, okay. few. <laughs> um, they, have, they have enormous turnover. Um, the vast majority of their workers are what they call hobby workers. So they work for a couple of months to earn enough commission to buy the new whatever that they want, or they work leading up to the Christmas season, um, and, they, and they quit. It's, um, it's incredibly inefficient. So they weren't supporting families on their no. A few, a few, um, but a very small percentage, less than 5%, um, that could earn enough or would earn enough. But see, Avon is also limited in that it was what we call a dual marketing formula, meaning that there was only one way to earn a commission, and that was between the sales representative and her sales, right, of what she purchased from the company. Um, And so in the 1950s, Amway starts. uh, By the 1960s, there's more multi-level marketing where women could recruit so if I were to recruit you, I get the commission from the sales I make, and then I get a percentage of your uh, sales as well. And then if you recruit, I can create these downlines where I can draw commissions from a lot of different sales reps. Avon is dual. They, they don't have multi-levels. They have just two levels, uh, the representative and the company. Uh, and that really limited how much women could make. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. Uh, you know, as a business case, I find the Avon story... Uh, more relevant right now than I did say would have found it 30 or 40 years ago. I also like how you, you, you discussed kind of the two sides of, of, uh, of Avon's history. And I'm just going to quote from the book here. You write that as a cosmetics company, Avon manufactured, advertised, and distributed its line of toiletries, perfume, skincare, cosmetics, beauty, and household products. As a direct sales company, Avon also sold a business opportunity. Its advertisements and recruiting scripts promised women financial independence. The women who became Avon ladies were in the most technical sense, Avon's only customer. 
the Avon lady bought products from Avon and then acted as a distributor. For more than 100 years, Avon had no other outlet for its products. The company did not sell to wholesalers or retail stores. I mean, Katina, that's a brilliant analysis and, and really relevant, or at least it should be very relevant. So what can 21st century students and organizations learn from studying the Avon story? Um, it, it's, it's a great question. I, I have to preface this a little bit with um, that there are other people who are using the Avon archive. I was just listening to one who's really writing about that right, right now um, about the gig economy and, and direct sales. The, the direct sales model is, is, in my mind, a little bit different from current gig economy. If I think of like an Uber um, or a DoorDash, right, that um, if I'm going to take my orders from that platform, from the Uber platform or the DoorDash uh, platform, um, the digital market, let me think this through a second here, because the sure. digital market for the consumer um, is a little bit different. It doesn't quite matter who. It is that shows up in the car or who it is that shows up with your, with your grocery order. Um, Avon and cosmetics, they were trying much harder to build a personal relationship uh, between customer and representative in an attempt to get re uh, repeat sales. Um, and so that's part of what doesn't exist on those platforms of, of Uber and DoorDash, I don't think. Wow. No, you're right. That's a really good point. That there's that level... Because that was the first way that was kind of uh, when the cracks in the Uber Lyft model started to appear, one of the first issues was trust, uh, yes. safety and trust. And because Avon, uh, the Avon lady was always a neighborhood person, that was not an issue. Right. The other part of that getting to know you kind of relationship and have bought from you for years mm -hmm. meant that um, in, in any direct sales company, the list price is a suggested price. Right. And so talk to anyone who actually sells Avon or Mary Kay. They always seem to have friends who they just kind of give the products to at barely above wholesale. That's something you can't do with DoorDash or, or um, Uber or, or those types of companies. Like the price that ends up on the customer's uh, phone is the price that they pay. Now, the tip, I suppose, is, is extra. And Avon ladies and direct sales don't, don't work with tips. Um, but I think that's just another part of the of a key difference of the of the direct sales model and the products as as a distributor of products. Um, I've purchased ten lipsticks from Avon to sell. I can sell them at any price I want. I can bury them in my backyard. Um, depends on what I want those um, products for. If I'm trying to get up to a sales level where I just need the number to go over for that quarter of a particular level. Um, I don't know, people have uh, play these games very differently in direct sales, I think, than they can with the, with the other online gig economy platforms right now. Yeah. That's a great distinction. And uh, thank, you for, for, uh, thank you for walking us through that. The Avon model really is much more entrepreneurial. It's Avon and the Direct Sales Association, um, because there's a large national association of direct sales companies. There's thousands. There's thousands of these companies. Um, Avon has always been a big player in the DSA, the Direct Sales Association, because of its sheer size. But it's Avon in the 1930s that writes independent contractor legislation. It's the Direct Sales Association that creates the status of independent contractor and what that means for tax purposes in the 1930s. You're not an employee. Uh, you do not have to abide by minimum wage to, for these employees, but uh, they're not required cannot require maximum hours or even minimum hours or anything. Um, and so the, the independent contractor legislation 
that so many people uh, in today's economy are you know, still kind of under that initial contract. Um, it really comes out of direct sale, selling and trying to divorce the responsibility for the employee uh, from the company itself. Interesting. Wow, that is fascinating. Again, I had no idea how um, how pervasive Avon's impact was on or is on modern life because uh, it just does seem like something from the past. Uh, but yeah. tell us quickly. So, who? Uh, where is Avon now? What is it? Uh, where is um, it? Under Andrea Young, she left. I think in uh, 2016. I'm going to get these dates wrong. It's really awful. But um, uh, then it, there was like two or three years after that, uh, that Avon pretty much went under and the uh, company split apart. Avon International, uh, which was the main company, moved. They are now a London-based company. Uh, and they split off Avon USA. So there is still Avon ladies. There is still, you go online and you try to buy Avon products. There are still Avon representatives. But they technically belong to a separate company now, Avon USA. Um, and Avon International is, is in London. And they deal with all the international markets where direct selling is still uh, very uh, prolific, very uh, advanced, and so many more people do it. Avon never really um, transitioned well to the digital era. Tell us how you came to write this fascinating book. What drew you to the subject? Oh, um, I always say I grew up at a kitchen table with, with um, a mother who was one of those women in the 1980s who just kind of broke her neck up against the glass ceiling. Um, she worked for a telephone company uh, and was kind of worked her way into middle management. Uh, she's a brilliant manager. She is an organizational genius. I do not say that lightly. Um, and uh, it was in the 1980s, and she was often in meetings, and she'd become a manager, and she'd be training men who, you know, one week would appear as her supervisor. Um, and yeah, and she, I mean, she was building a sex discrimination case, age discrimination case, but it, it was just overwhelming. So I always knew that gender and business, like, were were related, were this were this thing, and she's very much a feminist, and so I was looking for. Um, first, I was looking for a project as a dissertation project about men and women who were working essentially the same kind of job. Um, and I wanted to look at their work culture. I wanted to know more about their culture inside the company and, and with management. And um, so initially, the book was going to be called Avon Ladies and Fuller Brush Men. Uh, I had a heck of a time. I could not find the Fuller Brush archives. I have le recently learned that they have landed at the Smithsonian just in the past few years. And so I wanted that balance, but I couldn't find it. And as I said, in Delaware, there was that Avon distribution plant. And a friend of mine had said, try to launch a rate about Avon ladies. And it just immediately clicked. I knew those ads. I love that image that you see in the ads of Ding Dong Avon calling of, of the woman in her business suit with her matching hat and gloves and scarf and her sample case. Um, it's a very white suburban image. I don't try to sidestep it in the, in the book, but there's just so little to work with um, in the archives about how Avon reached out to African-American communities or other ethnic communities within the United States. Um, and so I just was able to land these archives. I kept calling Avon and asking for their archives. Um, I kept being pushed over to public relations where I got these high school kind of packets about the company. And I kept saying no. 
Um, and finally, when the company was actually moving from 9 West 57th Street, it's a tall, slopey building, if you're familiar with New York City, yeah. right behind the Plaza Hotel, overlooking Central Park. They built that in the 1970s um, when Avon International was so strong. Um, and they were leaving it because they were starting to kind of downsize. It was an era of corporate downsizing. They were moving back to Rockefeller Plaza. And so they had these corporate fling days on different floors. It'd be these enormous bins where people were just encouraged to clean out their files, get rid of their paper. And I'd be going up and down these hallways and seeing these, <laughs> these corporations just jettisoning this material. Um, and I had gotten to the boxes in the back of the actual archives. And uh, so we got them moved. We were able to move uh, the archives down to the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. Um, which is a, one of the premier business manuscript collections uh, in the country. And so I was able to uh, move my materials and, and to write this really uh, fun book. That was my conversation with Katina Manko, author of Ding Dong, Avon Calling, a well-researched book about the history of the iconic Avon brand and its innovative sales model. I hope you have a chance to read Katina's book. It's a fascinating story that remains relevant in our rapidly evolving and continually changing economy. That wraps up another episode of Paid by the Word, a podcast featuring conversations with writers, editors, and media professionals. We are grateful for your attention and we wish you all the very best. Stay safe and be well. Bye-bye.